Do we both sound equally amazing, velvety, and powerful? You sound a little echoey, Clay. Oh, man. We're in a big open space. Well. Oh, I should turn my fan off. Hold on. We need to go upstairs. How echoey? Mm. Echoey. Echoey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not unlistenable. Like, it's not terrible. Not terrible is my standard. We Aim high. That's right. Kathy, how does it sound to you? Do I sound super echoey and annoying? Annoying. Annoying. <laughs> That's a loaded question. Uh, Setting aside the typical yeah, no. way that my voice makes you feel. It was, more it was a little echoey. All right, let's go upstairs. I'm ready. We're going to go and get uncomfortable for the integrity of the podcast. Good. That's what we like to hear. How does it sound? This this is like ghost chasers. Now we're walking through the house. Yeah, that sounds Ooh. bad. Is it dark? Describe it. It's where old man what's the cuddy. What's the temperature? Temperature is a cool seventy-one degrees. Oh, <laughs> oh, in Texas, that's probably a sign of a ghost, right? Or death. Dude. Welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode number 235, and we're talking about deconstructing faith today. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I guess I'm Kathy Kong. I'm Matt Michelatis. <laughs> and I'm Clay Morgan. <laughs> I, I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> I, yeah, I understand. That's great. I feel like we deconstructed our intro. We did. It was beautiful. Let's really pulled it apart, see how it works, put it back together in new and surprising ways. Yep. Uh, that our listeners, I'm sure, we're not expecting, which is what surprised me. So, uh, yeah, on this week's show, we are going to be talking about some of the recent high-profile departures from Christianity, and more importantly, what that means for all of us who are figuring out our faith, or as the Apostle Paul said, working out our faith with fear and trembling. But before we get there, did you all see that in Alaska, a swimmer was disqualified, a high school swimming student was disqualified because her swimsuit was immodest, her school issued uh, state approved swimsuit was immodest? Her uniform. Her uniform, yes. This is one example of where we should not turn the other cheek. (laughs) Oh, man. So uh, we're going to post the article in the show notes at thefascinatingpodcast.com. But basically, this is a swimmer of color who is, according to the article, curvier than most of the other swimmers. And one of the judges felt that her swimsuit exposed too much butt cheek and so disqualified her for a, a, a vague rule. And immediate, apparently, immediately, as soon as that w- ruling was issued, everyone else at the event knew that it was going to spell trouble and it has. So they're reviewing the ruling. Uh, but again, the issue is that this is a woman who is wearing the school issued suit that was chosen specifically to be more quote unquote modest. And, well, and she wasn't disqualified till after she won. Right. Like she literally, as she was getting out of the pool, like it's not like they said even going in, which would have been problematic. Right. Right. Like as soon as she wins the race, gets out of the pool DQ. Yeah. So, uh, it, the article like keeps getting more disturbing the more you read it. There were parents apparently who have male parents who have taken pictures of the high school female swim. Oh swimmers my gosh! Before. 
to illustrate why they're swimsuits and was like Yikes. texting it to other parents saying this is immodest, things like that. Ew. Yeah, real Which gross. Apparently stuff. that guy got shut down immediately, right? Like that's inappropriate for you to be taking pictures of the kids. Regardless, it's a mess. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and what sh- multiple people have pointed out, all the girls are wearing on the team are wearing the same swimsuit. Yeah. So, so, so this is this is literally an issue of the fact that women's bodies all look different. Um, what they do huh? at different uh, at different rates, and in particular, uh, there, there's a lot of of both race and gender issues because, of course, the male swimsuits are significantly less modest than the female swimsuits, but no one is filed any complaints against them. So it's, if there's any hope that I took out of this article, it's that this very much does seem to be a singular judge who is getting a lot of pushback and it's causing the whole system to have to reevaluate their attitudes towards female bodies. Uh, But gosh, this kind of stuff just keeps happening, particularly to women and particularly to women of color. Well, and that's the thing. She's a girl. She is a girl. And if we don't already know that women's bodies are different, girls' bodies are different. And this is in a sport that's predominantly white. And I'm not a huge swimmer. I mean, I can save my life if I were in a pool and I had to swim. Those those school-issued uniforms are not, mm, they're not meant to highlight anything. (laughs) They're just swimsuits. And so for a ref to say that this one young woman, young girl, is disqualified for being immodest, what was she supposed to wear? Yeah. She had no alternative. There was no option A, option B. Everybody gets the same ugly swimsuit in the size that you can put your body into. And I think it's instructive, too, to look at the response of this poor child, that uh, she is mortified that people are drawing attention to her body and suggesting that she is being uh, that she is being purposefully provocative or sexual uh, which she's not intending to. So basically she's being sexualized by the people around her and it's really, really intensely distressing for her and it's causing her a lot of problems and, you know, emotions, which is what the, this kind of enforced cultural modesty sort of thing consistently does to young women. Oh, absolutely. So really upsetting. Matt, you've written about, these conversations around swimsuits in the past at Norval Rogers and those are still available, I believe. Yep. For sure. Yeah. I I wrote about it too much probably. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently not Matt, because this article happened this last week. So yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I have a few, a few of our fans have told me that they read it every year, right. When swimsuit uh, season is coming around to remind themselves they can wear what they like and they uh, pass it around to each other. So I think that's pretty funny. Well, That's good. I mean, you, and if you send your kids to camp, you can't send them with whatever they want to wear. Right. So this kind of also goes along with that. That is true. I think I've seen somewhere um, that boys are now being encouraged to wear shirts 
or swim shirts. Yep. But I've had this conversation with my boys as well is, you know, nobody really wants to see your chest. I certainly don't. <laughs> and <laughs> so why don't you just put something on, especially since you're so pale, it hurts my eyes. <laughs> oh, I feel like we're getting like just a little window into your Into your my parenting. parenting skills. Yes. Maybe I should uh-huh. write a parenting book. There you go. Um, Please put a shirt on, a <laughs> book by Kathy Kong. Exactly. And you have many shirts because as those of uh, listeners who follow me on Instagram know that my boys do not put their clothes away. They just pile up somewhere on the bedroom floor or the bed and that the drawers never close. But anyway, so if you send your kids to camp, you may also get letters or instructions on what is modest. Mm -hmm. That's true. Particularly for girls. So (laughs) this makes me all sorts of ragey. I was at a crew event in, uh, in Florida where college kids are coming from all over the U.S. for a week. And there was a young woman who had come to Christ like three months before. And so she got the uh, the little note saying, hey, we're going to the beach for spring break. Please wear modest swimwear. And then in parentheses, it says one piece. So she comes <laughs> with one of those swimsuits that it's cut. It's basically a bikini. But down the center, there's like this little bit of cloth that's held together with a metal ring. Mm-hmm. And uh, she couldn't figure out why everyone was freaking out. She comes up to me. She's like, I'm wearing a one piece and people are still telling me it's immodest. Like, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> it's called a monokini. A monokini. That's what it was. Yes. I knew that one. I, I thought it was so funny. Yeah. yeah. Sweet kid. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, again, I, I think understand. this is why it's really important that even though these conversations can be exhausting, we, we have to keep pressing into them because to Matt's point, uh, they're particularly traumatizing for the kids who end up being at the center of them. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't expect a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old to be able to articulate why whatever they're wearing is or is not modest because I hope they're focusing on more important conversations. Um, yeah. Lots of other things we could be talking about other than your swimsuit is riding up and you're disqualified. As right. swimsuits do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. Well, this conversation obviously has echoes with purity culture and that's kind of why I wanted to include it in the show today because, uh, we're, we're really mainly talking about, uh, what it means to wrestle with our faith and what happens kind of when our faith begins to, to mature. Uh, and, and uh, we're, I'm going to, we're going to qualify that more in the episode, but there've been two recent pretty high profile evangelicals who have either left Christianity or have at least said that their Christianity is not what it used to be. Um, the first was Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I kissed dating goodbye. I think like, 20 or 25 years ago. It was late nineties, right? Yeah. Um, and he again became like a cornerstone of the purity culture in evangelical Christianity. Is it the silver ring thing? Yeah. Promise rings and all that kind of stuff. Mm. True love waits. Yeah. Um, I don't think he specifically started true love waits, but I mean, that book was just, it was was courtship, right? You don't date. You only spend time with women that you have intention to marry. And there's a very specific process for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Harris became a lead pastor of a church, I think in Virginia, 
And then actually back in 2015, he announced he was stepping down from the university so that he could go to seminary because he basically said, I've been pastoring without like a good solid Christian education and I need to go get that. And so back in 2015, he, he quit his pastoring job and went to seminary. And then, uh, about a year ago, I think, was when he made his public apology for I Kissed Dating Goodbye and like quit selling it and, you know, uh, has actually taken steps to reconcile with the LGBTQ community, ap- has apologized to them for the way he contributed to Christian attitudes against uh, LGBTQ folks. Uh, and then just in the last couple of months, he posted a couple of things on Instagram. The first was that he and his wife were, were divorcing. And then the second was that he was uh, no longer a Christian. So I just want to read a quick quote from his uh, post, just a little piece of it. But he said, uh, the popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Uh, So this generated, I don't know, hundreds of responses and blog posts and and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And then I think maybe like a week or two later, uh, one of the main uh, songwriters and musicians who's a part of the Hillsong Collective, a guy named Marty Sampson, posted something similar on his Instagram. And again, I just want to quote a little bit of piece on a little little piece of it, uh, his post. He said, I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothered me now is nothing. I'm so happy now. So at peace with the world, it's crazy. This is a soapbox moment. So here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. It can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. Uh, So I'm curious, maybe just first, before we really dive in, we could probably talk about the celebrity angle of this to death, but I'm, I'm curious more how you, did you have any kind of a reaction when you saw these two uh, stories? Cause both of them made all kinds of headlines. You know, Hillsong produces the most popular worship music right now all around. And then again, Harris has been just such an influential figure in evangelicalism that both of these caused a lot of conversation. I'm curious, did, did they make your radar? How did you feel when you first saw them? Well, I never read Joshua Harris's book, and even though I was in ministry, um, his book wasn't as popular in the circles that I was in, probably because I was working primarily with students of color. So not to say that they weren't reading the book at all, it just wasn't the book that folks were reading around relationships and dating. Um, So it's been interesting to follow that journey first. And then I'll be honest, when he and his wife announced that they were getting a divorce, my next thought was, oh, I wonder which one of them is going to announce that they are walking away from their faith. Um. Because I think when you live in a world of absolutes, particularly in that evangelical space, and you've been so public, I just, I, I kind of thought my slightly cynical mind actually went there. It was like, oh, 
this is probably the next step. I don't know. Yeah. I think for me, I was, I was, uh, I, I wasn't surprised at all. This is what I would expect for someone to come to eventually mm-hmm. coming from the backgrounds of these guys. Uh, and it's something I went through myself and I was in a much less uh, rigid, well, depending on the context, I was in a much less rigid religious space than they were. Um, so yeah, I, I think I was more surprised by the people who were surprised. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like yes. if you read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is largely almost the entire book is cultural constructs of what should be done. Like the Bible says nothing about dating, nothing. So the entire book was a cultural construct. And then to be surprised years later when he's like, I'm, I'm looking into this and recognizing that a lot of what I believe is cultural construct that's been put on me not what the Bible says, not what Jesus says. And I'm rethinking things. I I don't think that's surprising. I think that's a sign of growth. Uh, And that's where I think stuff like where Harris says, I want to remain open to this. I think that's a really important piece is that deconstruction is process. And the place where you are today is not necessarily where you'll be a month from now or a year from now. Uh, And I think people are like freaking out about stuff because they don't understand the process, which means that their religious tradition, the place where they are, is not a place that's probably open to deconstruction, which is concerning. Yeah, that's my reaction to your question of how did it you know, make me think, is it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, and we're going to talk about our experiences a little bit here to kind of give this a little bit of a personal angle, I feel you know, kind of positive about it in some respects, because if somebody is asking good questions and getting away from a toxic version of a belief system, that's a good thing. Now, the way someone exits, the way, you know, it can be handled can be a bad thing. But in my journey, I've gone through some deconstruction that's been super life-giving, transformative in my view of my faith in God in ways that I desperately needed years before I knew it, where once upon a time I would have seen this as an attack on the faith, as a tragedy, as a horrifying um, influence to lead so many people potentially astray. You know, now I just kind of say, well, there's some good things to wrestle with there. You know, and then JR, to your point, maybe, maybe someone needs to tell, you know, at least Marty Sampson that, there's some pretty good conversation. All these comments, like no one's talking about this. Like, what are you talking about? Like everybody's right. been talking Everyone's about this for centuries. Everyone's been talking about these things. No one in his community is talking about it as the problem. Right. That's what Clay and I were talking about earlier where, you know, I think, I think this is where evangelicalism is, is really our, uh, I think this is where our lack shows. Because if you're Catholic, for instance, and you go to your priest and say, I'm having, I'm, I'm just having really, a hard time believing that God is love and that God sends people to hell. Like, I don't know how to reconcile that. The priest can say, well, here are 50 million Catholics who have also asked that question. And here's the 25 million different ways they've come up with to engage that. And we've seen those scenes in like half of the comic book movies and TV shows ever made. Right. Right. (laughs) right. Um, Whereas evangelicals, because we're so anti-tradition, we don't have that deep well and that wide stream to pull from when people get these questions. Uh, we're, we're sort of left with 
um, you know, the one or two celebrity pastors that we follow and whatever they say. And if their particular way of reconciling these questions isn't satisfying to us, it, we end up feeling like Joshua feel, feels where he says, I've heard there's a different way to practice, but I'm just not there. But a lot of people would push back and say, what do you mean we don't have tradition? We have 2,000 years of tradition or <laughs> even more. But I mean, I, just 6,000. Oh, sorry, Kathy, what were you saying? Just 6,000 years of tradition <laughs> and history. <laughs> um, you know, that. how many evangelicals can tell you, how, oh, let me say it this way, how many influential Christians who are not in the Bible can most evangelicals name and name anything significant that they believed? Probably C.S. Lewis, though, again, I'm often shocked how little of what Lewis actually believed evangelicals are aware of. Correct. Um, uh, you know, and then maybe Billy Graham. And again, same thing. They don't really know much of Graham's theology. They just know that he was a preacher and an evangelist. Um, so I, I think, again, when we get into these questions, we don't have that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 talks about that are surrounding us, that are, that are equipping us to deal with these questions. To your point, Clay, like lots and lots of people. It's not like we invented a bunch of good questions 10 years ago. Right, like that. ever since the internet, I've been <laughs> I've been skeptical about hell. Yeah, <laughs> I had a uh, this weekend. I was at a retreat, and a young man in his early twenties sat down with me at a meal and started telling me, like, I didn't want to say this when you were teaching, but I'm having a lot of questions, and people are telling me I'm not a Christian because of my questions, but I've been part of the faith community forever. Like, I think I'm following Jesus. And I said, well, what kinds of questions? He goes like, well, I don't understand the Trinity. I was like, okay, well, um, hmm. It's interesting that he thinks what in his mind, what he's being told is that if you don't sign off on the Trinity in this precise way, that you're not even a follower of Jesus, which is really interesting because just church history tells you that this is something that has been difficult, that people have fought about, misunderstood. And then I just pointed out to him in scripture, you know, there's this moment where they come across some people who've come to Christ, but have never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And I said, scripture seems to treat them as actual believers. Like, what do you do with that? And he was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. So it's this interesting thing where as we move into places of having questions, there are people sometimes standing saying, you know, they're standing around saying, oh, you've you've wandered outside the faith because of your questions, which I don't think is particularly helpful. Oh, it's not helpful at all. And I think even yeah. that example points to the lack of understanding and yeah. the lack of, um, you know, how many of us have consistently read through the Bible and how mm. many of us know church history and think of that as part of our faith and part of our faith development and journey is that it's not just about listening to the pastor on Sundays, but also having the opportunity to ask questions, to learn about church history, to read parts of scripture that aren't going to fit neatly into a four-part sermon series. Because there are, right? right? Because there, there, are, there are people in the Bible who are asking questions. <laughs> that, yeah. That's the whole point. Really frankly, right? right? Like kind of offensively sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think that's such an important observation, Kathy. And the way I've been thinking for a few years now about the process of deconstruction is exactly what you're just saying. It, it's essentially, it's essentially spiritual adolescence. Yes. Because what's happening, what happens in adolescence is children on their path to becoming adults have this period where we reject the things that our parents give us out of a desire to craft our own identity. And a significant majority of the time, at, on the other side of adolescence, we end up looking a lot like our parents. <laughs> Still, right? A lot of times, yeah. But, sure. but we have to go through that process of rebellion. Again, rebe- sometimes rebellion can be really obvious and stark. Sometimes it can be like fairly minor, but we're always, we're always testing what we've been given to decide what is going to be incorporated into our sense of self. And I think theologically, we, we should get to a place where we're doing the same thing, where we're testing the things that we've been given and figuring out how to own this faith on our own. Uh, and, and most of the people that I've ever walked with through a process of deconstruction, that's exactly what they're doing. They, they are saying, I've heard it said, but they want to know for themselves. And, and that's, I, I think it often comes at times of crisis also, like there, there's the natural spiritual growth kind of moments. And then there's crisis moments. And I think it's because we built, you know, the, uh, Jesus talks about the wise and foolish builder, like one built on rock, one built on sand. I think sometimes in religious communities, we have a, we have a combination of those things. Like we have a house that's built on Christ and there are all these wings and additions and other things that are cultural or uh, preferential that we've built up around it. So when the storm comes and tears a bunch of that away, we're like, well, maybe none of it's true because we haven't been honest about the fact of which parts of it are actually the core Christian pieces and which parts are like my denominational tradition or my cultural preference or like those sorts of things. And it creates a lot of confusion. Well, and I think particularly in some of our evangelical uh, traditions, the, those folks who have gone through the deconstruction and then built something of their own believe it so deeply and thoroughly that when we teach it and preach it, it ends up sounding like it's foundational. Yeah. Right. And so people just assume, oh, if I don't believe this, I can't believe anything. <laughs> well, it's like when yeah. you go back to fundamentalism, like the actual theological movement of fundamentalism, when they had, you know, they came out with this book called The Fundamentals, which you would think would be these key truths, right? The book was longer than the Bible. And that's hysterical, like that the fundamentals <laughs> are longer than the Bible. <laughs> well, and it's, it's recognizing that even our faith here in the U.S. is culturally bound. Yeah. And so I find it so fascinating that these two examples, uh, because of their Christian celebrity status, also felt it necessary and part of the journey, so to speak, to make a public announcement yeah. about where their personal faith and values and expressions now land. Because it keeps going, it, it pushes me to also reconsider how do I fall back into this false sense that this is an individual experience 
and an individual yeah. faith, right? That this is, mm-hmm. we are supposed to be a body of believers. And so even this language around, um, you know, Harris, uh, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, well, that that is problematic, that statement. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and I don't know, I, I tried not to read too many of these, yeah. but a number of folks who were formerly in Harris's circles responded by saying, well, at least he didn't become a fake Christian progressive. At least he's being honest that there's no way to what? believe the things he believes and be a Christian. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. One guy I read specifically said, I have more hope for him than I have for progressive Christians that he'll come back. <laughs> you know, so it's Kathy's point though, right? Oh, right. His, his deconstruction is going to be hard, that dude. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be rough. The, you mentioned this a minute ago that, you know, there, there's, there's such a dramatic leap for some people. And I, I know some of us are just wired with more skepticism than others, right? I mean, even looking at the Enneagram stuff, there are people who are more predisposed to look for rules and systems. And there are those who probably are, you know, looking always for the, um, the way to pull, pull it out, uh, pull the rug out from underneath it. But I never, in my experience, thought, well, there are parts of this that feel untrue, or this is definitely wrong or this cannot be consistent. And so I'm going to throw it all out. You know, that that's not how I'm wired. I, I would try to look for alternate solutions, or at the very least, if I'm going to take away a worldview that explains reality, humanity, creation, whatever, like, what am I replacing it with? You know, and it's, it's the old, I think it was Chesterton uh, or, I forget which thinker, but he said, you know, if you're, if you're ever going to tear down a fence, you know, you should understand why it was put up in the first place, something to that effect. So I'm always skeptical when somebody just completely disregards an entire view of anything without offering something in its place either. And, and there's a difference too in the way that some people could just, you know, wrestle or some people just say, well, these parts are too problematic. So none of it's real. And what then in place explains our existence in reality. And, and that's just a little bit of like philosophically, I guess, how I went through whatever deconstruction I've gone through. So I'm curious for you three, do you remember key moments in your own deconstruction? How, what does that word mean for you? Have you gone through a process? Are you continually going through a process? Like what, what is the personal connection for you, Kathy, we'll start with you. <laughs> it means telling my parents that we haven't been at a church regularly for the last two years. Hmm. And, uh, and to be honest about that. So I grew up in a very uh, Sunday church home every Sunday. Like the story is the first Sunday we were here as recent immigrants we found a church and went, I don't remember this. I was eight months old, so it could all be a lie. But uh, I think my parents are so rooted in that, like you have to go to church, that even on family vacations, we would find a small church or a chapel. Uh, a church on vacation, that's the yes. worst. Yes, yes. <laughs> trust me, trust me. Uh, and And... You know, we were 
Korean American families. So you can't always find a Korean American church. So there were some interesting family <laughs> trips and experiences that we had right. on these American road trips that we had. But, you know, um, so that's been part of it. And it also has been over the last, I'd say, 10 years of having friends with whom I did college ministry with asking me straight up, are you, are you still a Christian? <laughs> well, Kathy, can I ask you about yeah. that? Because I think, I think there are probably some people who would hear you say, I haven't been to church regularly yes. in the last two years. And they would have a question like, does that mean, are you still devout? Like, are you still following Jesus? Like, what does that mean? Has, sure. has that been because of questions like, so what does that mean about your personal spiritual life? Would you say you're still growing? Like those sorts of things. Oh yeah. I'm still growing. I'm, uh, Peter and I are back at a place where there is this desire to find a church home again, to yeah, use that language. Yeah. And we've always been a part of a church community. And once we land, we land. We are there for a decade plus. We get involved. We you know, show up. We lead. We all of that. Um, and this has just been a longer in between time. And mm. and it's been hard because it's been part of that more recent deconstruction for both of us around what does it look like to find a community that is also going to be as passionate and loving and angry and active around the things that are happening day to day in our communities and in the surrounding communities and see that as part of the gospel work, see that as part of living out, you know, kingdom come. And so that's what we tell people when they ask, because inevitably the question is, where do you go to church? And then Peter yeah. and I look at each other and we're like, oh, this is not a, you know, 10 second conversation. But, you know, so that's, that's a key moment where I think, think it's been about two years ago where we we left our last church and we both knew we were not going to be back. It's, it sounds like the, the seriousness with which you take your faith is, you know, the contributing factor to why you're not attending church. Yes, absolutely. And, and the desire to be in community. And so we have been popping in and out of different local churches. And um, and then I say yes to opportunities to uh, be the guest preacher uh, because I believe in the local church. Mm. I believe in the importance of the local church. And I'm struggling with not wanting to be the consumer, right? To find the perfect church that fits my needs and everything that I love about church. Uh, and so we are wrestling with what are the things that we can say, okay, this this doesn't have to be. We can wrestle in this context. So we're still looking, but it's definitely a place of deconstruction because this is the longest we have gone without being a part of a community on a regular basis. Mm. Yeah. I think for me, you know, I, I've always been like a 
an intellectually curious person is a nice way to say it. I was always the kid that asked the why, but why, but why, you know, in every sphere of my life, uh, not just at church, but, but I did ask in church. And I think I was just, I was really fortunate to grow up in a family and in a church where that wasn't vilified or demonized until I was older. (laughs) Um, But, uh, I remember, and I've shared this, if you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard me share the story once or twice, but I was doing a, I was doing a Bible study while I was in college. It was over a summer and my, a group of my friends that all stayed for the summer had asked me to lead a Bible study, kind of starting in Genesis and seeing as far as we could get, we didn't get out of Genesis 12, um, over the whole three months. Cause I just, every, I spent, I spent like two or three days a week in the library, like studying all the commentaries I could find and all this kind of stuff. And um, a big moment for me was when I was reading in the, the JPS commentary on Genesis about Genesis three. And it, it pointed out that there's nowhere in the Hebrew or Christian scriptures that the snake in Genesis is identified as the devil. And hmm. that just blew my mind because that was like a given for everyone I knew. Well, of course it is. And I was like, but the Bible doesn't say it is. <laughs> yeah. What? What? And again, like I had been raised with such a respect for the authority of scripture that it just, it, it boggled my mind that, that everyone could just take something for granted that was not in the Bible. And so that, that set me off on a whole, you know, a decades long exploration of, well, what does the Bible even really say about Satan? And why, more importantly, why do we believe so much stuff that's not actually in the Bible? So, so committedly and so uncritically, well, and, and also to the point earlier about that idea of what adolescence means spiritually, I remember where I went from a person who for 12 years had been raised in a Christian education to, I'm going to read this for myself. And in my experience, I was reading from a study Bible where the notes reaffirmed what I'd been taught. And when I found things that weren't <laughs> in the study notes, I went to leaders who reaffirmed the things I had always been taught. So... I was getting a more depth of understanding of what scripture said, but it was also constantly continuing to come with the same shading that I had always been taught. Um, So, you know, that progress doesn't always just like break you when you're 10 chapters into Genesis. No, I, and I was, again, I was fortunate to be in a place where I had a plurality of voices um, even just from other professors, right. And other Bible students. And, and that wasn't like the only moment, but that was, that was the first time I can really remember feeling such a sharp disconnect between what I'd always been taught and then what I was discovering for myself. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, some of the people that I was raising these questions with were excited. I had one adjunct professor tell a class full of people that I was, uh, dangerous and should not be spoken with. Right. <laughs> um, so, which just made you more excited. Oh yeah, I definitely wore that as a badge of honor. Um, <laughs> I wonder what would have happened if when I went with my questions to the people I went to, if instead of them being apologetics masters who had the perfect you know, explanation for, oh yeah, here's exactly what that means and here's how it lines up with everything we've always told you. If they had said, you're dangerous, stop asking questions. Like if I had been met with something a little more combative or you know, dismissive, that also would have probably well sped up some process of some kind. So it, it's interesting too what happens with that first batch of questions when mm-hmm. we when we express our curiosity. Well, and I'll throw in as you know the resident woman here <laughs> <laughs> that 
there is that layer too. I felt like so many of the experts around me were men Mm. and they were white men. And the people we read, the authors we read, the celebrity pastors we hear and also get the book deals, you know, so there's that reinforcement around who gets to ask the questions, who gets to be the experts, who gets to have a deconstruction process Mm. and, uh, and make an announcement and maybe get a book deal later. Right. So I, I think that there is that level of, um, how how the process plays out. And then I'm also grateful because I'm married and I don't know what it would be like to go through this process without Peter being okay with the questions that I'm asking. Yeah. And with him also having questions himself. Mm. And for us to sit in this space together and be wrestling, you know, as Saturday nights are no fun in our home (laughs) because somewhere around six or seven o'clock, we look at each other and we're like, where do we go tomorrow? (laughs) And, and so that we can do that together, but, you know, kind of going back to that, uh, the deconstruction, I have found, um, very much a part of not just my faith, but how it's been shaped by white male experts mm. and how that has pushed on to my understanding of how I see myself as a woman, how I see my role uh, and space here in the home as a wife or a mother and how for the, it, for the entirety of our marriage— the way we've operated has been a pushback at how a Christian family should operate. Because I've been the one in ministry and he is not. I have a more public face to my faith and ministry. He does not. So even in that, I think we, our deconstruction had to happen early because of the way we operated. And it continues because this is just a wonky world. And Christians who think they have all of the answers, I don't, I don't think it's actually working out, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think for me, like I've shared a decent amount before about the, on some of our shows about the Bible and things like that, just being pushed back. I think, JR, same thing you're saying, pushed back to scripture, like coming from more conservative fundamentalist churches, that's that's what we kept being told. Like the Bible is the key focus on the Bible and then discovering that the Bible didn't seem to match up with all the things I'd been taught. And so really honestly feeling like that was a service that fundamentalist Christian culture gave me was like, look at scripture. Um, but the other thing I think that's really interesting is because we moved a decent amount when I was a kid, we went to a bunch of different kinds of churches And I think being in those different communities forces some questions. So like, here's a goofy example from when I was pretty young. So when I was in grade school, I was at a, uh, a very conservative, um, Christian school. In fact, I won second place in an essay contest in, I don't remember third grade or something. And my topic was why you'll go to hell if you smoke cigarettes. Um, and so like literally, so the school is like, 
not just endorsing it, but saying like, look at this kid. He's award winning, right? Genius. Genius. Look, and look at his amazing ability to reason from the scriptures. Um, <laughs> and then I remember in fifth grade, we moved to California and we walked into a, a pretty conservative Baptist church, but less conservative than that school I'd been going to. And I walked in and the youth pastor's kid looked down and saw that I was wearing sneakers. And he goes, you're going to hell for wearing those sneakers, which he was joking. <laughs> you can't wear sneakers to church, you know, but I didn't know he was joking. I was oh. like, ah, dang it. Going to hell again. Um, and my <laughs> theology was pretty screwy at this point. I thought my, the school I'd been at taught you could lose your salvation, you know, and you had to get it back. Uh, by praying again. So I was like keeping track of how often I had prayed because my parents told me, no, you won't. It's doubting God to think they're trying to like help me sort this as a, you know, fourth grader or whatever. They're like, it's doubting God to say you could lose your salvation in that way. So then I was like, well, it's a sin to pray sometimes to ask for God to give me salvation. So therefore I need to keep track, even or odd numbers, which time I am on praying to receive Christ. The typical child thinking, right? Like there's kind of like a magic formula involved. Um, but, but what was really instructive, right? Was talk. I did talk to my parents and say like, Hey, this kid said I was going to lose my salvation because I was wearing sneakers. And they're like, that's just not, that's not the case. And then realizing over the next couple of years at this church that nobody believed that at all. And so, I mean, and not like I was having a true deconstruction at that moment, like I was too young, but it, those sorts of things I think started, uh, affecting the way I was thinking. And then I went to a Christian high school where we had people from a lot of different theological backgrounds, all at this Baptist high school. So there was some conflict there. But then one more footwear-related story of someone who helped me, uh, like did it well, even though he's from a very fundamentalist, don't ask questions kind of church, was the head pastor at this. I was going to a missionary Baptist church with there's two different kinds of missionary Baptist churches, but this was the white missionary Baptist. So it's about as conservative as it can get. It's like right on the border of being a cult. Like they don't believe you can't follow Jesus outside the church, but they believe you won't be part of the bride of Christ if you're not in a missionary Baptist church. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, uh, pretty intense. I was there because of, you know, my girlfriend, obviously. Um, <laughs> and I was always like, kind of like Jr. I was always asking questions, trying to understand how things worked and kind of like, what are the boundaries and how do I walk right up to the boundary without crossing it? So in the summer, it's California. I liked going around without shoes, like pretty much everywhere, like grocery store, whatever. And so I walk up to church barefoot and the pastor meets me at the door, very conservative, wears a suit like every time I ever see him. Uh, and he stops me at the door and he goes, Matt, don't you think it's disrespectful to come in here barefoot? And I was like, well, I'm going everywhere barefoot. So it's not disrespectful. And he goes, if you can show me in scripture why you should be allowed to walk in without shoes, I will let you. And I said, uh, Moses was told to take off his shoes because he stood on holy ground. <laughs> and, and to his credit, he just goes, you're right. Come on in. Which I think is the, like, that shows a generosity and a kindness to my process, right? He's saying, like, it's okay if it's in the Bible. And then even though it went against his cultural norms pretty significantly, he was like, okay, good. You're moving the right way. You're actually using the Bible. So come on in. Be barefoot. It's fine. Which is shocking, actually, looking back at that church. 
Um, but I think that's, that's an example of someone doing it well, right? When, when I came to them and that it's not a big deal to ask people to wear shoes when they come into your church, but I think it shows a generosity and a kindness to where I was to like have that conversation with me. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm laughing at your witty response. I was, I was a problem as a teenager. You, I don't oh, I know love if, it. I love it. <laughs> my poor parents. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. I know it was hard. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It wasn't always as pleasant as that, I'm guessing. <laughs> you know, I was uh, at the grocery store the other day and a woman in front of me had a bracelet that said 33 AD. Uh-huh. And I got curious about it. So I Googled it and it's this company that makes evangelism bracelets. Yeah. So you were supposed to ask her and then she'd tell you the story of Jesus. I know. I know the Tetelestai or Tetelestai, whatever uh, is the, is the company. But like when I brought it up in Google, it actually said something to the effect of now you don't even have to be the first one to speak. Basically the marketing around it was, we all know we have to evangelize and it's the worst. So if you wear this bracelet and it, it, it threw me back Ew. to that, it threw me back to that time, to that point about the fear, like to even like have these thoughts, right? There's mm. a lot of people who are afraid of you in the thoughts and certainly the questions that they're, they're nowhere near that place where they can ask the questions yet. And I was like, oh yeah, I had forgotten what it was like to walk around for years of my life feeling like if I wasn't interrupting the lives of strangers on the street and immediately asking them about their eternal salvation. That if I wasn't doing that on the regular, I was letting God down. I was ashamed of him. So he was ashamed of me and I was destined for the flames of hell. Like that was a, that was a thought process in my mind for many, many years. And the woman's bracelet made me think of that. And you know, in 2012, I'm putting out a book in the Christian living section and I'm still proud of that book. And I wrote it like during my process of deconstruction and right before probably a tipping point, Mm. you know, that that book is written in a lot of ways for people who would not have bought a book from the Christian living session Mm -hmm. section. So uh, we all have this journey and, you know, we're talking as for people who have, who have worked through it and found a way to maintain our faith and hopefully a new and stronger and better faith right on the other side of adolescence, JR or Matt. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine what 18 year old me would think talking to me now. <laughs> would you guys fight? I wouldn't fight with him, but JR fights with everybody. He would probably call me a heretic for sure. Mm. <laughs> what, okay. So what this process, like I think people, there are people who are really, even people who've been through the process, sometimes look at someone else in the midst of it. And they're really worried. They're like, this person's in spiritual danger. Yes. What, mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious for you three, not that it ever feel dangerous. I'm sure it does at times because you're like looking at things that you deeply held and going, is this true? But w- would you say you were in spiritual danger? Was there a moment you were like, I could fall away and I'll be, I don't know, new age. I'll be Muslim. I'll be, you know, something that's not following Jesus. What, like, is that true or not true? Looking back from now or back in the time period? Well, sure. How did you feel about, how do you feel looking back now? Like, do you think you were ever actually in danger? Oh, no, I was being rescued. Ah. Mm-hmm. I was being rescued from a belief system that was 
not always um, consistent mm. and in some cases toxic and in other cases the exact opposite of what I have come to believe the gospel actually is about. Mm-hmm. So you came to a pure faith. Actually, that's really beautiful, Clay. I'm grateful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say same for me. Like, <laughs> despite the fact that I get asked regularly, if not frequently, uh, whether or not I'm a real Christian. Um, yeah, I, like I, the, the weird part for me is it's because it's been such a consistent part of my life. I, I can't point to a time that I would say I was in a season of deconstruction. Like even that story I shared from my junior, the summer between my, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year of college, even that didn't feel like a, oh my gosh, I've been lied to all my life. What's happening? What's true? It was just more like a fun, I felt more like I was like Nick Cage and National Treasure, right? Like, (laughs) oh, I found this weird secret and I'm going to like do some exploring and figure out the truth. But like there was never a moment when I thought, maybe it was because I never felt like people had been lying to me. Like I, I never felt like the people who told me that the snake was Satan were like actively misrepresenting. I don't know. Like I, it, maybe it's also just because again, I was always that kid that asked questions and I, and I had a parents and an education that encouraged. And even again, it's many adjuncts aside, many of the professors at my university encouraged me to ask questions and weren't threatened. You know what I mean? Um, so like, I, I, I never, none of the people who were spiritual authorities in my life ever told me I was in spiritual danger. And so I just never felt that way. Like I always felt like all I'm doing by taking scripture more seriously, by asking these questions is getting to know God better and getting to know Jesus in a, in a way that was more real and more thorough. So yeah, I like, I don't know. It's this, this, I do feel somewhat like an outsider in this, in this deconstruction conversation because even the folk, like when folks come to me, which happens fairly often since I'm a pastor, they come to me and they're like, I just feel like everything's falling apart. And I ask them why. And then they share the questions with me that are making everything fall apart. I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I'm, I'm often like, really, that's the best question you came up with. I can give you several, several more. That life. Let me push you down. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like those, I mean, those aren't, and I don't mean this dismissively, but those questions aren't that big a deal. Yeah. Like, None of the stuff that Marty Sampson was talking about. None of those, none of those should be faith shattering questions. Right. Right. Um, right. Which, which again, I think is why I think it's, and we're going to talk about this in a second before we wrap up, but I think it's why our churches, we, we just have to do a better job of creating spaces for this. So I don't know, Kathy, what about you? Yeah. It doesn't sound like you've ever felt like your faith was like in crisis either. Well, I think that there, are, there were those times, um, where life just gets very challenging, and I found the stock answers from the church really lame. Um, and and realizing that uh, as much as I miss church community and Christian community, it also did not have all of the answers. And if that's why I was going to believe in Jesus, that was not going to work, because I'm never going to have all of the answers to my questions. I remember um, we had a miscarriage uh, in between our two older children, and uh, I was devastated. 
did not know how I, you know, I felt like I couldn't trust my body, that I didn't know what was happening in my own skin, literally. Mm. And then the pat answers from particularly my Christian friends were horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> were just horrifying. Well, yeah. you know, this is, you know, think of it as God's mercy. And I was like, what? Oh, what? We got that too. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, are you kidding me? And so I think it isn't so much um, feeling like, oh, uh, I'm I'm not a Christian. It's realizing that my understanding of Christianity and my understanding of faith was very small. And that much like clay, this feeling of, oh, there is so much space in this faith to have questions, to have doubt, and to maybe never have that resolved. And that's okay. <laughs> that's really yeah. okay. And I, I love that. I love that. I also realize that that's not comforting to others. And, and I do think that that has a lot to do with culture. Mm. Yeah. I'm hor- I'm horrified when I go back and imagine the things I said to people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm embarrassed. You know, if I were to see that, I don't care what he would say to me. I would just pummel that arrogant a-hole who I was <laughs> because I'm just, you know, I just feel it was so many lost years. But again, that's, that's why in my, it was the certainty, right? right. And again, like there's no higher form of arrogance than a, probably a 22 year old North American white male, but maybe a 33 you, year old. That's what 80, so, so 33 me, means. Like, you know, I was saved from that. How many people did I make feel that way? Kathy, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious. I, I want to ask two kind of closing questions. Cause I know we're running a little long, but um, this is such an important conversation. Uh, first, I think all of us have been in positions where, uh, and, and are regularly in positions where we are uh, engaging with some folks who are entering into a season of deconstruction or a space of deconstruction. So I'm curious what responses you have found helpful or what advice you might give to some of our listeners who are finding themselves in those spaces. Hmm. I think I, I would say two things. One is the truth has nothing to fear from inspection, right? Like if something is true, you can ask all the questions you want about it. It's still going to be true. And if you're honestly seeking truth, scripture is very clear about what happens. Seek and you'll find, right? Jesus mm-hmm. is the truth. So if that's all true, you don't need to be afraid. You just need to be honest mm-hmm. and you need to be diligent in your search. And then the second thing I would say is, uh, for me, what's really helpful is the story of Jesus and Thomas. Like Thomas gets a really bad rap. Uh, we always mm. doubting Thomas, all these things. But when he stood in front of all his buddies and said, I'm not going to believe that the resurrection has happened until I've put my finger in his hand and my hand in his side, uh, that Jesus showed up and he said, here I am, go ahead. And I think that's a really, I think for me, that's the takeaway of that story. Not that Thomas had doubts, that Jesus met him there and said, what do you need to believe? Here you go. And I think that's that's God's approach to us. I think God desires us to have the pieces we need to be able to follow him well. And so we don't have to be afraid to ask questions. We don't have to be afraid to be honest about our doubts or our fears. Jesus will meet with us in that 
and as followers of Jesus, we need to be doing that for each other too. Yeah, it's probably not a coincidence that I ended up writing at length about Thomas near the end of Undead. <laughs> at that time, I was like, this guy had it right. And um, yeah, mine, mine would just simply be remain curious. You know, if curiosity is what brings us to the place of questioning, that's a great thing. And I've been thinking about curiosity a lot lately. But don't stop at the point at which you find those inconsistencies or those problems with your belief system, right? Continue to remain curious until you begin to find some other sensible um, possibilities, at least. Because we do live in an ordered universe, you know, and there are reasons that um, this whole existence doesn't have to be complete chaos and meaningless existence. So... um, you know, by following your advice, Matt, you know, we're encouraged to question. It's safe. There's no, you know, fear on the divine entity's other end that once we get there, we're going to be, um, you know, somehow so disillusioned that, that we're not even allowed to search. So just remain curious. Kathy, what's your advice? Mm. I think you, I think it's been helpful for me to find um, others who have questions. And it's been important for me to learn from people who have different belief systems. Mm. And to Mm. find people who are questioning their own faiths, their own belief systems, the own. The, the experiences, uh, the rules, the truths that they grew up with. Um, I know when I uh, started practicing yoga, I, I, and I still, as a teacher in the yoga community, I still have a lot of Christians who are telling me that I'm going to go to hell, and then a lot of yoga practitioners who raise their eyebrows because I'll talk about my faith when I'm in a training teacher environment. I find that uh, it's good to be around people who believe in things outside of themselves and have the space to ask questions and not always land on a perfect answer. Um, And then I have really enjoyed going back and reading... um, uh, Rachel Held Evans, uh, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, it, you know, she, she wants to take the Bible seriously and does wow. it in this kind of uh, winsome but serious way. And I think the first time I read the book, I didn't completely appreciate uh, the depth and commitment to uh, her research into that and having reread the book. Um, I think that's one of those things you could do in providing space in the church is to encourage people to read books by people like our friend Rachel, who had questions and wasn't afraid to ask them and to ask them maybe on our behalf. Hmm. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add is just to build on Kathy and just say, if you're 
afraid to ask questions, it probably means you're in a group of people who all think like you mm. and already already know the right answer or at least pretending that's the right answer. And you just need to know there there is literally no question that you could ask except maybe cutting edge quantum physics questions because the science is certain. <laughs> Other than that, there is literally no question that you can ask that thousands, minimum, minimum, thousands of Christians before you have asked mm-hmm. and have come to different answers on. Yeah. So And are still following Jesus. Yes. And so avail yourself of the deep and wide tradition of the church mm-hmm. and find, don't find answers, find conversation partners. Uh, I am rarely satisfied with an answer, but I love the great conversations. And at the end, of, we're, we're working through the Bible uh, uh, and how we how we read scripture in on our Sundays at Catalyst right now. And one of the things I keep coming back to with folks is that the purpose of scripture is not to give us right answers. It's to invite us into a relationship with Jesus. And so, and relationships are conversations. Relationships are not answers. You, you're never finished with a relationship if you're doing it well. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Just, I really love everything Kathy said, like about just having those good, good conversation partners and it takes time to find them. I, I love it when I get a random Facebook message or email from someone who doesn't even know me, but has either found my book or found the podcast or something like that. And they say, Hey, this might be weird, but can I ask you a couple questions? And it always ends up becoming this like months long relationship where we just go back and forth mainly because I refuse to give them answers. <laughs> I just say, well, that's a really interesting question. Let's talk about why you're asking it that way. Yeah. And tell me what you think about God and tell me, you know, you know, and I don't know. JR the corrupter. Can, can yeah. I make one last distinction that I think might be helpful for people? Yeah. I, I think sometimes the reason we think the deconstruction ends in walking away from faith or some sort of, uh, you know, dissolving of morality is because we'll look at something, a situation like this. There's a man who wants to divorce his wife because there's a woman that he's sleeping with. Right. And so he goes, Oh, I have questions about Christian marriage and how it works. That's not deconstruction. <laughs> that, and again, that's as far as we know, that's not what either of the guys we mentioned was doing. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that at all. But we've seen this before. Right. right. What I'm saying is sometimes we get this confused with deconstruction. Are you talking, are you are you, you subtexting Henry the Eighth right now, Matt? <laughs> yeah, well, you could for sure start there. I think what what we see in a situation like that is someone looking for a way to feel good, like to justify themselves in in an action they've decided to take. Mm. So it's not true deconstruction. It's how do I remove myself from this thing I believe so that I can do the thing I want to do. And that's really different. It's just a complete, yeah, it's rationalization, not deconstruction. And so I think if we're healthily deconstructing that things like that are not a real danger, because we notice what's happening and we're like JR's question of like, why are we asking this question can be really important. And, and honesty with self is really important in the process of deconstruction. Cause if part of your reasoning is I would really like this other thing to be true so that I can do what I want. That's probably, I mean, it can be, but it's probably not actually deconstruction at that moment. Well, it's a great conversation. We could go on for a long time and hopefully this will spark some further conversation online, either at facebook.com slash 
the fascinating podcast. <laughs> or I you forgot for a moment. I was like, what's happening? Just a dramatic pause. That was beautiful. Beautifully done. Um, Give people time to type it into the yeah. browser bar. <laughs> you know, find us on our socials. Um, before we get out of here, we need to talk about what's fascinating us this week. I'm going to call an audible, change mine, and go first because it puts a little bit of a, a follow-up on what Kathy was mentioning a minute ago. So did you, um, any of you see that... Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was doing an Ask Me Anything on Twitter. Yes. No. And, it was, and it was just a bunch of questions. And they said, what are you reading? And he rattled off three or four of the books he was reading the other day. And uh, he mentioned Inspired by Rachel Held Evans. Yes. And I thought that was so cool, you know, both just as a tribute to her legacy or continuing legacy. And, you know, because at the end of that, process where she did try to revere the Bible, but really understand how it fits into modern culture. And then when she was searching for Sunday along the way, and ultimately, you know, she finished with Inspired, which is what Lin-Manuel Miranda um, mentioned and what we spoke to Rachel about earlier this year. Um, it was a beautiful thing. And it, it's just, you know, she was obsessed with Hamilton and hmm. there, there was just kind of this like amazing, you know, turnaround there that he's using his platform to say, this is a book I'm, I'm reading. And who knows what he's working through or why he found it or why he, he shared it. But uh, I did find that really fascinating that, uh, and, and just very sweet and exciting that, that he shared that. Yeah, that's cool. I'm also going to steal from Kathy. Uh, so last week, Kathy was fascinated by the terror infamy on AMC. I have since been watching it and I'm now also fascinated by it. Uh-huh. Uh, if you missed last week. Wait, are you saying the one that Kathy said last week? Yes. yes. You're just going to say the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Jeez, unoriginal. Yeah. yeah. I just, I started, I led, that was my lead in. Yeah, I just. Uh. <laughs> um, although uh, I'm a white man, I am not going to steal anything from Kathy during this show. <laughs> but you're enjoying the terror. Yeah, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, and I should say, as we're recording right now, both Kathy and I have only seen the first four episodes. There's one more that has been released that neither of us has watched, and I think it's an eight or ten episode season. So we're we're probably not even quite halfway through yet, but. My 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 frustration at this point is there is there is a supernatural creature in the show. Spoiler, yeah, spoiler. If you don't know anything about the terror, <laughs> um, it is uh, the whole. If you remember Kathy talking about it last week, that this this season is an anthology series. So this season is focusing on Japanese internment in during World War II, and so the creature is Japanese, and I have resisted looking up what kind of, if it's a, I assume it's some kind of a real Japanese uh, monster, but I've, I have not looked it up yet. And so because I don't, it's not like a vampire or a poltergeist or what, you know, a monster that I'm familiar with. I don't know what the monster wants and what it's doing. And I'm hoping that before we get to the end of the, of this, of the show, it, it tells me what kind of monster it is. And so Clay had mentioned it's hopefully probably going to reward rewatching. I don't want to have to ask Wikipedia what this monster is. Um, so I'm, yeah, but, but I love it. The acting's great. Um, rarely is the creature, the scariest part of the show. It's more facing internment and what that meant for America and what it honestly continues to mean is really much more horrifying than this creature. So will you both be satisfied if it turns out they made up the creature and the point is that the ultimate horror wasn't really about it? 
<laughs> That's a complicated yeah, question. I'm not it sure. feels like a storytelling would be off at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I fully believe at this point it is a real Japanese monster of some kind. Um, that there's there's no reason to expect that they've made up some new kind mm-hmm. of monster. Mm-hmm. So, and again, what I what I mentioned before in the pre-show was I'm I'm the reason I haven't looked up the monster yet is because I'm trying to watch it as a white American male who doesn't know that much about Japanese culture and folklore. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to respect that that's how I'm watching the show mm-hmm. and I'm trying to not avail myself of the tools uh, because I, I'm hoping that that is kind of part of the point of the show mm-hmm. is that, you know, a Japanese American person is going to experience the show differently from the way I mm-hmm. experience it. And so I'm trying to trying to let that be the reality right now. Yeah. Also spoilers um, are the worst. But but you're well, strong. But but again, if I'm watching a vampire movie and I don't know vampire, right, right, right. spoil it to go to Wikipedia and read. Oh, vampires suck blood and they can't go in the sunlight and you know that garlic something about garlic. Right. Yeah, right. Garlic. And that, that's what I'm saying. Like I don't Side understand the rules of the monster yet. So yeah. when the monster does things in the show, I'm like, oh, I guess it can do that. Okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. I didn't know because yeah. um, I don't know what kind of monster it is. Okay, so the terror. Anyway, the terror infamy. It's really good so far. Um, yeah, you gotta watch. Thanks, Kathy. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Well, I'll jump Tell in. Tell me what I should be into next Yeah, week. The Testaments. So <laughs> Margaret Atwood's sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, which is a hmm. series on Hulu and uh, is also a book. And the book came out, oh gosh, 85? Yeah, a long yeah. time ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been that long. Is the show is the show way past the book? Like, yes. is all of the stuff in the show from the book, or do they just make up a show beyond? Well, it? it's gone beyond the book, and she okay. she consults on the show, but she doesn't make any hard decisions. Um, but I did a little research. She started writing uh, the testaments two years ago after the elections here. In the U.S. and she's Canadian. She's very funny, um, and so I pre-ordered the book. I've got it. I haven't started it yet, so I'm going to start it today as soon as I'm done with phone calls, and just dig in. So I'm, I'm very, hmm. very excited. Nice. Yeah. It's interesting cool. to take thirty, almost thirty-five years right? between one book and the next. Yep. Well, and I read a couple of interviews with Atwood before. Um, this book came out. And one of the things she said was that her question, the thing she was curious to explore was how regimes like Gilead fall. Hmm. So, so I'm, I'm assuming that that's touched on at least in the test. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine this week is a uh, fantasy novel called Eridani's crown by Alex Schwartzman. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty, so far, a pretty traditional fantasy. Like these two kids are in line for the throne. They're studying in another country uh, when suddenly some people trying are trying to kill them because someone has murdered their father uh, and taken the throne. And so it's kind of the story of, of this young woman who's going to try and get her dad's kingdom back, basically, uh, with starting from a position of nothing. Like she's... She's got a little bit of money. She's got like two people she can trust. So it's pretty fun, straightforward fantasy read so far. Uh, I'm guessing knowing the author, there's going to be some twists coming up, but uh, I've just been enjoying it. Pretty straightforward pleasure read. So that's been fun. Um, What do you guys, what what do all of you have out on the internet that we could check out this week? 
JR, what do you got? Uh, oh, so Think Christian likes to put out ebooks every now and again, and their newest one is a theology of the office. So this is essays inspired by the NBC sitcom The Office, and I have uh, an essay in it, and you can get it for free if you sign up for Think Christian's newsletter. Oh. So uh, the whole ebook, not just my essay, though. Um, I I, I'm my, I had a lot of fun writing mine, and I'm super excited about it. And uh, yeah, it's fun. So. That's great. Uh, Clay, you, you had kind of a big moment this week. What, what is going on with your, your stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I did this um, Amazon Alexa skill. I was teaching a course last year and I was figuring out how to make Amazon Alexa skills and trying to help people do the same. This is where you can talk to your Echo devices or now your Fire TV or your whatever. Um, and I created a skill called uh, Writing Motivation. And it was kind of supposed to be snarky, but then some of them turned up turned out to be earnest and it's like literally she'll just keep telling you as many lines to motivate you to get your butt in the chair and start writing again. <laughs> and I, I like literally forgot this thing existed. I haven't updated it since, I don't know, last June, 2018 and CNET, like one of the biggest sites in the world, certainly the biggest tech information site, um, wrote this article the other day called five surprising things you didn't know your Amazon echo could do. And it picked my skill as one of the things. Awesome. <laughs> it's crazy. Like 200 million people, you know, read that site. So a month. So there's no way that really the author of this piece even knows who I am or anybody really knows that I created it probably. Cause I don't even know that I've put that on Amazon, but uh, it was just fun. And now I can say yeah, I've been featured amazing. and seen it. Right. How about you, Kathy? So I don't have anything new. I'm in the season of not doing a whole lot, <laughs> which is uh, probably something I should explore deeper. Um, but I do want to send folks to um, some periodic blog posts that I've written over the past few years. Um, they can Google vitamin L, and there's a link um, in the show notes. So I write about vitamin L on my blog post. That's Lexapro. It's an antidepressant that I've been on for a number of oh, years. Wow. Um, and yesterday was um, National Suicide or World Suicide Prevention mm. Day, and there were um, a number of prominent people, um, I believe two, within uh, the church uh, evangelicalism who had died of suicide. So I just wanted to point people in that direction as someone who is still and probably will always be deconstructing her faith, uh, but has a little bit of a social platform out there, is also on antidepressants and hmm. loves to talk about that as well. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I think we'll just put a link to my article about bikinis are not immodest, given our, uh, our intro today, which will lead you to many, many articles about various things about modesty, the Bible, how it all works, uh, which might be a deconstructing process for you. So let us know how that goes. Uh, on next week's show, we're going to be talking about Christianese, the words we use that define our faith, which I think should be interesting. If you have questions related to, to, to today's show, or if there's specific terms you would be interested in us spending some time talking about next week, drop us a note. We look forward to hearing from you. And until then, uh, thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. 